0: in our church you know the services are going well and things are going really well at our our church things we're attempting to do God's bringing visible fruit from that and I think that begs the question in our our lives is God only at work on our good days is God only at work in those seasons of our lives where we can see visible fruit where it seems like God is immediately answering those prayers that we offer up to him what about our hard days What about hard seasons? Is God at work in those? Or for the people of God in Christ, our confidence is not in our changing circumstances, but in our unchanging God. We look to the one who, who rules and reigns above every circumstance. He rules and reigns over every problem and trouble and trial that we know this side of glory. We may not be able to answer the question, and really we don't need to be able. We may feel like we need to, but we don't need to be able to answer the question, why did God let this happen? We're not going to be able to know that, this side of glory, if we'll ever know that. But what we can know is that our God is good. Our God is in control. He loves His people, and He never stops doing good to those who love Him. That's our confidence in our unchanging God. He's at work in our good days, and He is also at work in our hard days. For those who are in Christ, we find confidence as God draws near to us in those times of of trouble, that He continues to do good to His people, even in those moments of darkness and sadness and trouble. Well, this fall, we will see those truths illustrated in the book of Genesis in the life of Joseph. It's what I love about these historical narratives, like the book of Genesis. We see real people, real men and women of God in history with real trouble and trials that we face. We can often see our stories in their lives. The things we read about in New Testament epistles, letters that teach us truth and doctrine, we can see that doctrine illustrated in the lives of God's people. And that's what we get to see in the life of Joseph. What's going to stand out as a theme in the life of Joseph is the providence of God. It's a theme we'll see throughout his story. Now, God's providence, it's often referred to as his invisible hand. A hand that's invisible, yet powerful. Always at work. Always providing and giving good gifts to his people. A hand that cannot be stopped. That word providence, if you look at it, right, the word provide is in there. It's it's at the very root of of providence, that that God supplies and provides every need for His people. And God's providence, what, what it speaks to is God purposefully providing for His people. That He works all things together according to the counsel of His will to provide for His people. So what is the providence of God? You you can look at a number of of catechisms or confessions of faith. We'll go through a few of those, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. You've heard this one before if you've been in our church for a few years. I've referenced the Heidelberg Catechism. And question 27, if you want to review this later, question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is the providence of God? I'll give you the short answer at the very end. It's a longer paragraph, but to sum it up at the very end, all things come not by chance but by His fatherly hand. All things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. As Christians, we have confidence we are not left to chance. We are left to the good and providing fatherly hand of God. That's what we're going to be thinking about in this story of Joseph. God's providence, it simply means God is good, and God is in control. At all times, in all situations, everything in creation is under the providential care of our God and our King. And not only does He provide all things, but He arranges them according to His plan to bring Himself the most glory and to do good to you and me, if indeed you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, as we look at this story of Joseph, It's important to start with the end of the story in mind. So maybe you've heard this story a lot. Maybe you had the blessing of growing up, hearing about this Bible story. Maybe this is the very first time you've heard it here this morning. But it's important as we make our way, let's not be caught off guard. So this isn't a spoiler alert. I think knowing the end helps us interpret all the trouble and the difficulty Joseph experiences in his life. You see, at the end of Joseph's story, we find one of the most powerful and clear verses in all of Scripture about the providence of God. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph speaking to his brothers, and he says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Throughout the story of Joseph, we see God's at work. God saved his chosen people of Israel from starving to death by famine through the means of Joseph being sold into slavery by his very brothers and carted off to a foreign land in Egypt, enslaved there. Terrible situation, difficult trial, lots of evil, family strife, hatred, jealousy, betrayed by his own family. They meant it for evil. Yet God was at work the whole time, working for good. We see that here in the story of Joseph. And we have to start with the end in view. And isn't that the same with our life, Christian? We've got to regularly start with the end in view and and live our life backwards. We looked at that in the book of Ecclesiastes. What we know will come one day. We will stand before God. We will give an account of our lives before God. For Christians, for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, we've trusted in Jesus and His perfect life. And his death on the cross as payment for our sins, as his resurrection from the dead to bring us new life, that we might honor and please God as those who are filled with his Holy Spirit. We will surely stand before him one day. This life is not all that there is, there is surely a next life. So let's start with the end in mind and then work our way back to this life today. And you may come in here this morning, Christian, experiencing trouble knowing sadness, knowing difficulty, and disappointment. Live your life backwards. Look to the end of a story. It's what Joseph's story teaches us to do. If you haven't already done so, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. The best way for you to stay engaged this morning is to open up a copy of God's Word. If you don't have one with you this morning, take that pew Bible in front of you and open up to page 31. Page 31, Genesis 37. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you. So use it this morning during the sermon. Take it home with you. That's our gift to you. And we'd love to connect you with someone in this church to read the Bible with you. So talk to one of our members around you or come see any of our pastors. We'll be at the doors on the way out. We'd love to connect you with someone to read God's Word with you. We're going to be in Genesis 37, page 31. We've already read through it this morning with Kelly reading God's Word to us. So we're going to jump right in to Genesis 37. You know, throughout our study, we've noted there's an intentional structure throughout the book of Genesis that Moses, the narrator of Genesis, he divides up the book of Genesis into these teledotes or generations. There's 10 of them. And we see that familiar phrase in verse 2, these are the generations of. Today, we begin the 10th and final generation there in Genesis, the generation of Jacob. And our time in the rest of the book of Genesis, which will take us through the rest of the fall, it's going to be tracing the story of God's plan for redemption through Jacob's family. And the spotlight is going to be on Joseph, Jacob's son. Well, this morning we'll cover chapter 37, starting in verse 2. You may wonder why weren't we in verse 1. We covered that when we ended our study in Genesis, verse 2, I think, is where this section starts. That's why it says these are the generations of. It starts a new unit, a new story there, the story of Joseph. And as we make our way through chapter 37 today, the main idea that I want you to get from this section of Scripture is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. God's people find comfort that He is with us in times of trouble. God's people find comfort that He is with us in times of trouble. We see this theme of God's providence. He's with His people. He guides us in times of trouble. He provides for us in times of trouble, in times of feast, in times of famine. God provides for His people. As we make our way through this passage, there's three lessons that will teach us more about God's Providence. That's how we're going to divide up chapter 37. Let's look first in verses 2 through 11. The first lesson we find in verses 2 through 11, God's sovereign choice will stand. God's sovereign choice will stand. With the generations of Jacob, the the story, it focuses there on on Joseph. At that time, we see he was a 17-year-old who was Shepherding in a pasture. So at 17, shepherding, he would have been an apprentice shepherd. He would have been on on the bottom of the totem pole amongst his 10 older brothers. And we get the detail very early on his brothers do not like him at all. They don't like little brother Joseph. And family tension is really seen throughout the story of Genesis. So this isn't anything new. There was certainly tension in the family between Jacob and Esau. In fact, you can go all the way back to Cain and Abel and see family tension there. And the first 11 verses of this chapter show us a growing family tension between Joseph and his 10 older brothers. Now, for starters, we read at the end of verse 2 that he brought a bad report about them. Now, perhaps Joseph was a tattletale, snitched on his older brothers. I mean, who likes that, right? Perhaps that's what he was doing here but it's really unclear whether this bad report was true or not. That that word report, it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it typically refers to an untrue report. So it could be that Joseph, he didn't give a true account. He kind of made something up to make his brothers look bad. You know, whichever it is, whatever he reported, it clearly causes tension. Adding to that tension, we see that his father Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, remember that, so we'll see his name used interchangeably throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, but Jacob showed favoritism to Joseph. And favoritism is also something that's not new in the family. Jacob's mother, Rebekah loved him more than Esau. And, and Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So, so Jacob continues this pattern of favoritism. And even though Joseph was his next to youngest son, he was born to, to Rachel. Jacob's favorite wife. Jacob loved Joseph, therefore, more than any of his sons. Now, he shows this love for Joseph by giving them this robe of many colors, or that could just refer to a, a long-sleeved robe. But these bright colors on this robe, this was an extravagant royal coat. Right? So most likely, this robe signified royalty. From my study this week, several scholars I read read think that this robe points to royalty because the only other time we see this reference to a multicolored or long-sleeved robe is in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8, where we see another long-sleeved robe worn by King David's daughter, Tamar, who was a princess. So the picture likely is that Jacob marks Joseph off as the future ruler of the family, the one who would receive the majority of the family inheritance. And we read with all of this, the brothers have had it. There in verse 4, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Speaking peacefully to him is offering a greeting, a greeting of peace, shalom. They couldn't even say shalom or hello to him. They didn't want to talk to him. They didn't want to be around him. And the tension and the hatred, it continues to grow as Joseph decides to share with them about his two dreams. And During that time of biblical history, God would often reveal his will, particularly the patriarchs we see this happening, uh, through dreams and through visions. We've seen this before in Genesis back in chapter 28. God revealed his will to Jacob in a dream concerning a ladder from heaven to earth with angels ascending and descending up the ladder. Now today, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the normal way that he shows us his will and reveals us his will is through his Holy Spirit and the power and the truth of his word. So God's Holy Spirit and his holy word are there to guide all of his people. We read God's word, we pray, we seek wise counsel from godly people as we seek to make decisions for the future. But here we see that God showed his will to Joseph their dreams. And Joseph shared about these two dreams he had. Now, both of these dreams end with his brothers bowing to him. Again, you bow to royalty. You bow to a king. That's what he's telling them. You're going to bow to me. The the first dream in verse 7 used symbols from agriculture, namely a a sheaf, which was a a bundle of grain stalks. In verse 7, the dream, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf, arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. He shares a a similar dream there in verse 9. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. The the sun and moon, referencing his father and mother, then the 11 stars, 11 brothers bowed down to me. Now, Now, only God could command the sun, the moon, and the stars what to do. So these dreams, he's presenting them here, here's God's will for me to be a ruler of this family. In both of those dreams, Joseph sees himself in a place of honor amongst his family. And, and these dreams, we'll see in the story as it goes on, these dreams are used by God to confirm and to foretell that Joseph will rule over all of Israel, he'll rule over his brothers. As the story unfolds, we'll see these dreams, they become reality. Later on in Genesis 49, we'll see Joseph ruling in Egypt and his brothers bowing down to him. You see, Joseph was the one that God chose, elected by God's sovereign grace. God's purposes for the people of Israel would be accomplished through Joseph. That was God's sovereign choice. And for the original audience, the the wandering people of, of Israel, hearing their history, coming from Moses, they would know through this story that nothing happened by chance in their history. Everything happened according to God's sovereign plan. God's fatherly hand had been at work amongst their ancestors, showing his will and his plan. Now, sharing this dream, it's not something you would expect would be received well by your big brothers. Hey, you're going to bow down to me. I, we wouldn't expect that would be received well, especially standing there in your multicolored coat. Now, it could have been that, that Jacob was sharing this in a boastful manner, excuse me, that Joseph was sharing this in a boastful manner, or it could be that he was just incredibly unaware, like he didn't know how to read the room. He was just going on and on. He didn't necessarily have to share those dreams with him, but he chose to do that. But clearly, it wasn't received well from his brothers. And we, we see their response, it's intensifying Hatred. Verse four, they already hated him. Verse five, they hated him even more. Verse eight, after he shares, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then in verse 11, again, he didn't know how to read the room. After sharing the second dream, the hatred continues to intensify. The brothers were jealous and envied him. And that word jealous shows us kind of an intensifying hatred that it implies it's going to develop a plan. Yet Jacob, we see here, kept the saying in mind. Now, Jacob rebuked him at first, thinking, wait a minute, Like me and your mom are going to bow down to you? Like, hold on here. But then we see here, he, he considered perhaps maybe even his own story. God had chosen him over his older brother Esau. God had chosen him and revealed his plans to Jacob through a dream. He had been promised already that kings would come from his line. Could Joseph be the one? He tucked it away. He kept it in mind. Sounds a lot like what we read in the New Testament in Luke chapter 2 with Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she pondered in her heart what the shepherds told her about the future of her baby, baby Jesus. You see, the problem the brothers had here, ultimately it wasn't with Jacob's favoritism. He shouldn't have shown that favoritism, but the problem ultimately wasn't with him. or It wasn't with Joseph being an annoying little brother. Their problem was with God's plan. Their problem was with God's word revealed in that particular dream. God chose and elected Joseph and they rejected Joseph. Joseph was the one that God chose, elected entirely by God's grace. God's purposes for the people of Israel would be accomplished through Joseph. When we say that, that God is sovereign, what we mean is that, that God is right and he has the power to do all that He wills. That's what we say with God's sovereign. He's right. Who can question any of His words? When has our Lord ever needed counsel from anyone? He's always right. He's full of power, and He's always right. His sovereign choice will stand. Now, His providence is how He goes about delivering that will. He purposefully provides and arranges circumstances and situations to deliver his will for his people. These dreams, they were God's revelation of his plan to bless the people of Israel. These dreams, they set the stage for what unfolds in the story as we see God's invisible hand at work. And again, from the people of Israel hearing this history from Moses, they would be sure and confident nothing happened by chance. But everything comes about by the fatherly hand of God. Well, in verses 12 through 28, we see a second lesson on God's providence. Here's a second lesson for us to consider. God is with his people in all their trouble. God is with his people in all their trouble. Sounds simple. If you've been in church for a while, you're like, okay, agree with that, I know that. How often do you believe that? How often are you tempted to doubt that and to question it? In the second scene, starting verse 12, the hatred and jealousy from Joseph's brothers, it overflows into a terrible act of evil. And as this story unfolds, we will see there is no act of man, no act of evil that can get in the way of God's plans. That's important for us to remember as a church this morning. It's important for us to remember that Jesus has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus said, I will build my church. Just like it was important for the Old Testament people of God to hear this story and be reminded, nothing got in the way of God's plan with Joseph. It's important for the New Testament people of God, the church, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, to be reminded, nothing will get in the way of what Jesus has intended to accomplish. He died on the cross to save people from every nation. There are rulers on earth right now, this morning, trying to prevent that, trying to stop that. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, in places like East Asia, North Korea, places in Africa that are meeting in silent, in secret. I preached in one of those places in East Asia a number of years ago, where we had to huddle into an apartment and meet in secret. There are rulers trying to stop the advance of the gospel and the work of Jesus. They will not prevail we think about this this morning, may we be comforted, that God's with us in all his trouble. His his sovereign choice will stand. God's people needed to know that here in the story of Joseph. Now, the scene begins with Israel sending Joseph to Shechem. That's about 50 miles away, about a five-day journey to get to Shechem. And he sends him there to check up on his brothers. And we see that Joseph's response, he immediately obeys. That's important to note because Moses sets up a contrast here. Joseph obeys his father. He's faithful. The brothers we see poor character throughout. There's a contrast. So he even just highlights God's sovereign choice. He chose an obedient and faithful servant. We see his his choice is in line with what brings him the most glory. What we read here is a similar theme to the story of Cain and Abel. Joseph was a shepherd. Well, what was Abel? He was a shepherd. Right? Abel was faithful. He obeyed God. Cain hated Abel. Out of a jealous heart, he killed his brother because of his faithful deeds. It's the same theme here in Genesis 37. Joseph presented as a faithful and obedient son who draws the jealousy of his brothers. Now, as Joseph makes his way to check up on his brothers, look at how God's providence unfolds. 17-year-old Joseph wandering on a long journey away from home, away from his father's care. And in verse 15, it just so happens, a man found him wandering in the fields. And it just so happens, this man who found him knows where Joseph's brothers are. In verse 17, he points them to go to Dothan. That's not Dothan, Alabama. It's about 14 miles away from where they were there in Shechem. And uh, now Joseph, he's even further away from his father's knowledge and protection and care. So he's in a vulnerable situation. Another point worth noting, this delay in the story. Jacob wandering around. It set his trip back a little bit, but it wasn't a setback at all. In fact, it was all a part of God's perfect timing to deliver Joseph to Egypt. God's leading him forward. Things take a turn for what seems like the worst. There in, in verse 18 his brothers see him from afar. Evidently, that multicolored coat was not hard to spot. Right? They see him approaching and they conspire to kill him. Look at verse 19. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Well, why do they want to kill him? Well, they don't want him. To rule over them. They think if they kill him, they can put a stop to this dream. Notice that they don't consider this is God's plan. It wasn't just our foolish little brother's dream. This is God's will. They think they can put a a stop to this, and their actions show a total disregard for God. They didn't ponder anywhere in the story if these dreams happened to be from God. They weren't asking, is this true or is this not? They just simply hated the dream because it didn't make much of them. And they sought to destroy Joseph. And they foolishly thought that their actions to kill their brother could somehow alter what was God's plan. Furthermore, they showed no concern for God. So they figured out a way that they could try to keep this news from their father. But notice they didn't consider at all, well, God sees everything. God knows everything. Maybe they should rightly fear their earthly father. And Jacob, in his response, But most of all, first and foremost, we should fear God. He sees and he knows everything. He's right to judge us for our sin. They show no concern on a vertical level for what God sees, for what God thinks, for what God wants. They're completely living on a horizontal level. When you live on a horizontal level, it's all about what you want. It's all about what makes much of you. It's all about what you think will make you happy. You see, those who put their faith in God, we live on this vertical level. We ask the question, what, does, what pleases God? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul describes every Christian talking about himself and the fellow workers of the gospel. But he says, we make it our ambition to please him. There was no ambition to please God from these brothers. There was selfish ambition for personal Gain. In verse 21, we see the oldest son, Reuben. He hears of this plan. There's something noble that happens here. We haven't seen a lot of noble things out of Reuben so far in Genesis, but something noble here. He, he tries to stop his brothers. He convinces them to not take Joseph's life, but rather to just throw him in the pit. At the end of verse 22, we see the detail that Reuben planned to rescue Joseph, right? So it says there is thinking that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So maybe he's thinking, all right, I'll get them to throw them him in this pit, and then I'll duck out for a little bit, and then I'll come back and get him and take him back home. And with Reuben being the oldest brother, they listened to him. Notice in verse 23, though, they they strip Joseph of his robe. They would have none of this idea that he was to be a ruler. They they threw him in the pit to leave him for dead. Now, the pit most likely was a cistern or a well. well. What are wells typically filled with? Water. Meaning, you get thrown in there, you're going to drown. You're going to die. It's going to be your death to be thrown in there. Well, it just so happens, we get the detail, the pit was empty. It just so happens, right, in God's providence, there was no water in it. So Joseph wouldn't immediately die. He was trapped there in a terrible situation, but his life was preserved. And the callousness of this act is captured what the brothers do next. Look there in verse 25. Then they sat down... To eat. Joseph's in the pit, presumably weeping, crying out for help. They sit and they eat. It's a picture of heartless selfishness. Leaving Joseph in the pit clearly would kill him. He would die of starvation, yet the brothers eat. No thought of changing their minds. No remorse for what they just did. Every opportunity to say... Hey, we shouldn't have done that. Let's get him out of the pit. What were we thinking? But they eat, and they carry on. But this isn't the end of Joseph's story. God's invisible hand is at work. And notice, it's in this pit that God was at work. That's the location. That's the place that God was at work, in this pit. Now, it just so happens that a caravan of Ishmaelites, again, perfect timing, perfect timing, he got held up in Shechem a little bit, wandering around. Where did they go? Which way did they go? They had to travel more to Dothan. And in God's perfect timing, all of these events work together. And we see this caravan of Ishmaelites passing by on their way to Egypt. And Joseph's brother Judah sees an opportunity. In his mind, they can prevent Joseph's blood from being on their hands, and they can get rid of him. We don't know all of his motivations here, but certainly we see they can make a profit off of it. And in verse 27, Judah proposes, Come, let us sell him. To the Ishmaelites. And the brothers listened to him. Again, whatever his motivation was, he ended up saving Joseph's life. For the brothers would have left him there to starve and to die. Now, something interesting about this chapter, if you haven't noticed this already, God is not specifically mentioned in this chapter. We see a lot of evil mentioned in this chapter family strife, jealousy. Hatred, a conspiracy for murder by Joseph's brothers, uh, them selling him into slavery, an evil act. But God's not specifically mentioned a single time here in the story. But brothers and sisters, clearly God's not absent from this story. His invisible hand is clearly seen as guiding and providing throughout the story of Joseph. And Christian, how often do we see that? In our lives, when's the last time you wondered, where is God in any of this? Maybe you felt like God was absent. Maybe you felt like his love and his care for you was absent. If we're honest, there are times we experience that. There's times we wonder that. There are moments of suffering or discouragement. Moments like we thought about last week in the book of Jude, where we may doubt the truth of God's word. We may doubt his faithfulness to his promises. We may doubt his loving care for us. We may doubt how is God possibly going to work for good out of this situation? Well, brother and sister, again, we're not going to have all of our questions answered this side of glory. This side of glory, we will know suffering. We will know trials and hardships. We will experience the effects of living in a sinful world. That's what the book of Genesis, that story provides for us. The history to know this fallen sinful world around us, where it came from, what went wrong, and what God has done in Jesus Christ to make all things right. One day at his return, all things will be made new. But this side of glory, we know suffering. Sometimes we may feel like that God is absent in our lives. But I think the story of Joseph reminds us Look for his invisible hand. It's invisible, but look for his providing hand. Trust, be patient, wait. God, no question, is providing for you. He's good. He is in control. He's shown us this most of all in his, son for Je- in his sending his son Jesus, providing for our greatest need, forgiveness of our sins against a holy God. He's already given us the greatest need we have the need to be forgiven of our sin against a righteous God. How will God not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's the logic of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. Well, in the New Testament book of Acts, Stephen taught on this very passage. It's important to see. well, how has this passage been preached on in Scripture? In Acts chapter 7, Stephen actually references this particular episode in verses 9 and 10 of Acts 7. Here's how he taught it. Verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. He saw this whole story, and he made it clear, God was with him. It's not like God departed from him, and then God made his way back at some point later on in Egypt. God was with him in the pit. God was not absent in the pit. God was not absent in the sorrow. God was not absent in the trouble. Brother and sister in Christ, we've been given the greatest promise we ever could have been given in Christ. If you've repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, this promise from Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, it's ours. Jesus said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a short promise. It's one I'm sure, member of our church, you have heard before. Don't get so used to hearing it And don't get so familiar with that promise that it doesn't stir up faith in you. Behold, I am with you always. I'm with you in every trouble, every sorrow, every disappointment. I'm with you in the good times. I'm with you when it seems like you're winning in life. And I'm with you when things change. You know, I was sharing with someone recently, you know, kind of when I hit 40 years of age. There was a mark. I'm 44 now. So there was a change of experience in life. It was a difficult change. You know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, uh, for a lot of us, it feels like we're winning. It does. Like, we're winning. Like, we graduated college. Like, we're winning. I got married at 24 years old. Winning. I got a house. Things are going well. We're winning. We're winning. We're winning. And there's a point in time, It's for some of us, it comes earlier than others. For me, it, it started to come around 40s. Start to lose. We start to lose loved ones. I lost my childhood best friend at 42. I didn't expect that. We start to lose loved ones. I started going to the funerals of my college roommate's parents. And you hit this place in life where you realize maybe winning isn't all that there is to life. Far too often we think about triumph, even in American Christianity. We think about victory and triumph, and we miss that suffering comes before glory. Isn't that the pattern of our Savior? That His humiliation came before His exaltation. And so it is for those who follow Jesus. Our humiliation comes before our exaltation. The exaltation is sure, Glory has already been purchased for us. No one can snatch us out of the hand of Jesus if you put your faith in Him. But this side of glory, there will be trouble. The hope we find is not that if we just do the right things, if we learn the right things, we'll prevent trouble in our life. The hope we find God is with us. In Christ, God is with us. He is for us. It isn't just true for Joseph. Christian, it's true for you. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and if you're here this morning, and you haven't, you haven't put your faith in Jesus, we would love to talk with you more about what it would look like to become a Christian today, to repent of your sin, to change your mind about your sin against God, and to put your faith in Jesus. Come talk to any of our pastors at the door afterwards. Talk to someone who brought you. Consider what it would look like to submit your life to God and to live your life under His providential, fatherly, caring hand. Third and final lesson, verses 29 through 36. 29 through 36, nothing can stop God from advancing His plans. Nothing can stop God from advancing His plans. To be sure, being sold as a slave to foreigners may not at first have seemed like a rescue. I mean, that was a type of death sentence in itself. Worked to death and then disposed of when He was no longer useful as a slave. God would later deliver him from this, but in the immediate, this isn't like good news in the immediate, right? It's not the end of the story yet. That's why in verse 29, when Reuben returns and sees what happens, he tears his clothes. He knows his brother seems to be as good as dead. Well, how would they explain this to their father? In verse 31, we see they decide, well, we'll slaughter a goat. And they dipped Joseph's robe in the goat blood and sent it to their father to deceive him. If you remember the story of Genesis, where we've been so far, there's a bit of irony here. Jacob deceived his father Isaac by slaughtering a goat. Slaughtering a goat to get goat skins to cover up his arms and his neck. There's irony here. His sons deceive him by slaughtering a goat. Now, the brothers didn't have to tell a story. They simply gave him this robe soaked in blood and Jacob came to his own conclusion. He broke down thinking a wild animal had devoured Joseph. And he went to a season of sadness and mourning. The attempt of all of his sons and daughters, uh, they could not comfort him. He proclaimed that he would mourn until the day of his death, when he would go to Sheol, the place of the dead, and see Joseph in the next life. And while the end of the chapter has mourning and sadness, the chapter does not close without a ray of hope. In verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, the one God chose to save Israel, now in place, Joseph in Egypt, positioned right where God wanted him, for God to use Joseph to save Israel and to save the surrounding nations from death by famine. And when you first read this chapter, it may seem like there is setback to setback to God's plans, right? Setback after setback seems to be happening. But in reality, all of these setbacks were used by God to advance His plan. So setbacks, they're real. We experience setbacks in life, financial setbacks. We go through hard times, sometimes physical setbacks, things we used to be able to do physically that we can't be able to do today. And those are real trials and difficulties. But keep in mind a broader and greater perspective. God uses those setbacks, even those setbacks, in the lives of Christians to advance his greater plan forward. The brothers, they thought they had put a stop to Joseph's dream, yet their actions were the very first steps that God used to make these dreams a reality. Well, for those who've trusted in Christ, we can have confidence that God uses even our setbacks to advance his greatest good. And the New Testament, the Apostle Paul taught this truth, Romans 8, 28. Please do not let this verse just be a coffee mug verse for you. You know what I'm talking about? It's a coffee mug you buy at a Christian gift shop, if those even exist anymore. It just looks good, sounds good. It's something that just makes us, yeah, it's something sometimes, again, we become so familiar with that it doesn't stir up faith within us as it should. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Look at the life of Joseph. Look at the life of Jesus Christ. For those who put your faith in Jesus, your life is now in Him. Which means that God's purposes and His plans are being accomplished in your life, period. And that every setback, every failure, every time we give in to temptation even, that we're called to confess, we see God as gracious to draw us to confession and even to use those failures in our lives to move us Forward. You see, Joseph's brothers, they meant all of this for evil, but God meant it for good. And far from stopping or hindering God's plan for Israel, this caravan caravan of Ishmaelite traders would be the very vehicle that God used to fulfill his plans for Joseph and for Israel. Well, I wonder what vehicle God is using in your life right now that you and I just don't like. Sometimes we have a ride in life that's uncomfortable, it's not fun, it's difficult, it's hard, it involves suffering, yet God is using that very vehicle to bring us closer to Him. You see, the last trial that you and I will face, unless Jesus comes back first, which I hope He does, I hope Jesus comes back before you and I die. And I hope you're ready for that moment. If you're not, again, you should be ready. You should get ready today. But the last trial that we will face, if Jesus doesn't come back first, it's death. We will all die. And the Christian hope is that because of Jesus, His death buried in the grave, resurrected, raised from the dead, three days later, that in him we have victory over death. And then we have victory over sin and Satan and death, which what that means is that Christian, you will never know a trial that you will not outlast. There's never a trial that will finally conquer you. Every trial gets us closer to glory. And that final trial, when we succumb to that, we will then know glory. All that we've trusted God for in Jesus. All that we've beheld by faith, we will know by sight. We can expect trouble, trials, suffering, yet we can expect God's care in all of it. Now God has ultimately shown us his provision and his care in sending his son Jesus. Now I want to close on this. Many scholars, they point to the story of Joseph as foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. Think about these contrasts, comparisons here. Joseph was a human savior of Israel from death through famine. Jesus, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, came to save Israel from sin. Joseph was rejected by Israel. Jesus came and was rejected by Israel, mocked, beaten, nailed to a cross to die. Judah, Joseph's brother, sold him for 20 shekels or pieces of silver, handing him over to the Gentiles. Judas, Jesus' disciple, sold him for 30 pieces of silver, handing him over to the Gentiles. As we look at Joseph's story, he went from humiliation to exaltation there according to God's sovereign plan. Joseph was as good as dead in a pit, a type of grave, and God raised him from up out of that pit. In that particular sense, it wasn't by a miracle, but certainly by the powerful hand of God, his invisible hand delivering Joseph from the pit. And this theme, it gets repeated throughout the Bible, ultimately building up to Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus that led to exaltation. It was perfectly displayed in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who left the riches of heaven to come down to earth, to live life fully as man and fully as God. He humbled himself to come and live among us. And he humbled himself in obedience, even obedience to the point of death on a cross, dying a death that you and I deserved. God raised him from the dead, up out of the pit of death, exalting him and giving him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And for those who repent of their sin, And put their faith in Jesus Christ. We follow him in this humiliation. And we will surely follow him in exaltation. And the takeaway you can have from the story of Joseph. Is not this was just true for Joseph. But it's true for all of God's chosen people. If you put your faith in Jesus. God is with you. God is for you. He is with you in famine. He is with you in feast. Why should we study the providence of God? What good? Will it do? Here's the answer from this question, verse 28 in the Heidelberg Catechism. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love since all creatures are so in His hand that without His will, they cannot so much as move. God is good. God is in control. May we find comfort this morning that he's with us. He is for us in all of our trouble. Let's bow and pray.